ACRM is 100 years old this year. Join us in Atlanta this October for our 100th anniversary annual conference. The largest interdisciplinary rehabilitation research conference in the world will feature hundreds of instructional courses, symposia and papers and posters, and an expo hall with over 100 exhibitors and sponsors. Go to acram.org slash register. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the RehabCast, the official podcast of the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine and the Archives of PM&R. I'm your new host, Dr. Bill Niehaus from the University of Colorado. In this episode, we will be discussing two publications that continue to help me navigate potentially daunting topics with my patients as a healthcare provider. First up, I personally have found it difficult to feel consistently successful discussing how my patients are approaching intimacy and sexuality topics with their partners. Hopefully, after listening to my discussion with social worker William Coquet, it will help you as well be more successful discussing sexuality and intimacy topics with LGBTQI plus patients who have chronic diseases. In the second section of this episode, I discuss with Dr. Cheryl Cotta-Charles how chronic traumatic brain injury patients reported the mental health impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. You may think you know the answer to this, but I promise an interesting result, so be sure to listen to the whole episode. Let's get on with today's show. I'll allow my first guest to introduce themselves. Thanks for being here. My name's William Coquet. I am a hospital social worker. I work mainly within emergency medicine but also within rehabilitation, where the main focus has been on stroke survivors. My research looks quite detailed at the LGBT population, as they have not yet been studied in relation to sexuality and stroke. And I've chosen to include partners as we find their voices often not included in research. I think that's awesome. And I wanted to thank you for taking the time to actually do this paper and get it published because it is an important topic. And as we start to think about it, tell me a little bit about what prompted it, but how did you actually go about taking that idea of wanting to add a voice or a a publication or authorship behind this idea and moving through the process of actually building this meta-analysis? Sure. So a bit of background to this research and to doing my PhD in this field is that I found there was no research, no resources for LGBT people. And when you look at basic resources out there, it's very heteronormative, very biomedical in approach. And so for me, I felt it was part of my responsibility since I've acknowledged the gap in the research to reach out and find out why. It was when I contacted my professor, who is Dr. Margaret McGrath, on her previous research that looked at sexuality post-stroke and found her research sadly did not encapsulate LGBT people. And so there were discussions and we formed a partnership as part of my PhD to look further into it or, well, look at it from scratch. And when we came to doing a systematic review, there was no research on stroke. There was no research on brain injury that we could use. So we actually had to water it down even further and look at disability and chronic illness to just start that conversation of how does disability impact 
on sexuality in the broader sense of not just sexual activity, but also relationships and the non-intercourse elements of sex and intimacy, things that we don't normally consider because of the biomedical approach to sex. I could not agree more. And for our listeners, what were the chronic illnesses that you were able to find some information on that had data out there in order to run this review? Well, for me, as a gay man, I do identify as gay and I'm out and proud. It doesn't define me, but I've known some of the background to LGBT health research. So I found it quite surprising that it was mainly focused on HIV and cancer in the term of prostate cancer for men. There wasn't a loud voice for mental health. Women were quite excluded from the conversation. But when you consider that when we look at biomedical research, we're looking at the physical of sex. And so men are always quite dominant in the research. And you could even go as far as saying men are sexual beings and women are perceived as emotional beings in biomedical research. Yeah, that definitely makes it difficult in order to build this hypothesis from where you started and wanting to think about what the stroke population looked like for LGBTQ plus individuals and intimacy and sexual relationships. I was surprised with how little there was to actually work off of. And I honor you for adding this to the body of research out there to help spur this forward. You mentioned some of the chronic illnesses that were present. About how many papers were you able to look at, and what were the things that you were able to pull from that body that you reviewed as to what were you starting to find? Initially, we found, I think it was like over 18,000 papers in total. Now, a, a great deal of them I think about 6,000 papers or so were duplicates. But when we got around to screening those papers, we found it dropped significantly. We had a total of 63 papers in the end, and 59 of them were unique studies where four papers were actually all based on one study. It would have been a large number because we did find some good papers that looked at LGBT and heterosexual persons, but the data and findings were combined and we could not separate the data to say, okay, yes, they've included everyone in this, but they've separated the data. We, we found many didn't do that. So we couldn't use that data because we could not split the data. And there were quite a few papers that did that. Further on from that, it, it's the terminologies used in research that are not consistent. So you would have a paper that talks about men that have sex with men. but the paper wanted to identify were they self-identifying as straight or gay or bisexual or just don't self-identify. So it made it harder for us to actually give more in-depth data when writing up the analysis. And the other issue of it is that a lot of the quantitative papers had variations in measures used to measure sexual function. And when you consider all of the measures we looked at, I think all of the measures reflective of heterosexual men and not 
homosexual men, because if you consider heterosexual men, it's all about vaginal intercourse. But when you look at anal intercourse, there's a different makeup to the body and to how rigid the erection needed to be to complete the sexual act. So that wasn't really looked at within the research we found. So it made it harder to get a consistent picture, which also affected our pooling of the data and the results we did use. So moving forward, there's got to be a change to the research that has been done and published because do further reviews on what's been published, it is quite limited to what's available. That makes sense. If there's no other takeaway from this systematic review, it's that we definitely need more information in this space about how to best care, counsel, and help patients move through this process, uh, whether they be heteronormative relationships or LGBTQ plus individuals. We need more information on how better to care for them as the whole person that is experiencing, whether it's the chronic illness or the stroke or a catastrophic injury that we're familiar with from the rehab side of things. One of the things I found very interesting about this beyond just the quantitative pieces that were trying to be added to these studies were the qualitative pieces. Can you talk a little bit about some of the interesting things that you found along the way in the papers that included those pieces and the different moments you had working with that type of information? For me as a social worker, I found the qualitative findings and data we were finding actually spoke quite clear about the impact. So this is going to include a bit of a history lesson for the listeners. But if you look at HIV and what we know about HIV, HIV was quite a stigmatizing disease. And it still is in a lot of communities. And that really came out of the research and that bisexual men that had HIV were stigmatized not only by health professionals, but even by the greater LGBT population. Because obviously we did not have PrEP or PEP 20 years ago where people could take a pill and become undetectable, which we now know undetectable means you can't pass it on to your partners. So the research reflects that historical component to it, but it was also issues like prostate cancer and the changes to erectile functioning with the treatment they were receiving for the prostate cancer made it harder for men within the papers to actually continue what they would do previously. In the paper, it does mention some men did change their role from a insertive partner to the partner that ideally receives the sex. But even then, there's issues around pain and discomfort and just the bodily changes. And even though women were not as evident in the research, when we did find research on women, it was emotional. It was about body image. And as we know, there are medications out there that can affect body image due to weight gain. It can change how we feel about ourselves. And that's that social aspect of sexuality that we don't feel attractive, we don't feel desirable. And in the paper, it talked about men almost being quite different, where a erection was almost a social standing in the community, 
where if you can't get hard, you're not attractive to other gay men. So there was such a heavy focus on the physical and not the emotional, not the relationship status. And there were changes to sexuality, like the use of an open relationship. I think one paper spoke about where the partner of someone with prostate cancer explored sex outside the relationship to maintain that relationship. What we also did find was partners had a change, had impact. They were not the ones with the condition, but because with health and chronic condition, we don't always think about the partner. And in our research, partners were evident at times, and their impact was about becoming a carer and ideally losing that romantic relationship and needing to put their partner first. That ideally impacted the quality of their relationship. Some did call it a positive because it strengthened their relationship, but others saw it as a negative due to relationship strain and breakdown, which we can all say we have seen, we know it happens, but it's not often spoken about within the research. This paper really helped me better define kind of what I'm talking about with patients and other providers in some ways when you're counseling that person is trying to have that discussion both about the sexual intimacy component and almost pulling the intimacy in the relationship as a part of that conversation as well. It's something I'm far more adept at with some diagnoses, but this paper really helped me recognize that it's a conversation I should have with more than just the spinal cord patients I'm taking care of, that we have this conversation about a little bit more regularly as a health provider, but broadening it out to make sure that intimacy with another partner is something that can be impacted. Uh, I think I even saw diabetes were some of the chronic illnesses that you were finding in the literature and moving it just beyond and destigmatizing some of the conversations that it can feel like it's not something someone may want to talk about, but at least providing them the space to say, we could talk about this if this is something you want to talk about. And one thing I will add is that even though our paper looked at more the impact of sexuality, health providers did get a mention in the research because it's health providers and healthcare professionals that do need that knowledge of how does it impact because that's who people talk to to go, hey, I now have prostate cancer, what happens now? And a lot of the research did talk about how there's a discomfort and a lack of knowledge on how it impacts on the LGBT community. But also there was a mention, there was a focus on how it's also the personal beliefs. And as we can see in the media, the LGBT community is still being stigmatised by the medical field. I, I won't say all of them. It's probably a minority of health professionals that are doing it. And so there's that discrimination, and it's quite a historical discrimination if you think back to the 60s and 70s, gay men learned that doctors are not people that they can trust. So there's that trust issue already. And when health professionals are not open or comfortable about answering questions, that's going to further impact those relationships in the future because people talk. 
like the LGBT community, even though it has its faults, like all communities, they talk, they do support one another. So experiences of one person can influence others. And as health professionals, we may not all have a strong oath to do no harm, but we all get into health to do no harm and to support people in their health and well-being. And if we don't move beyond our personal beliefs and treat the patient as a person first, we're doing quite a disservice. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Very well said. Having thought about this, having gone through it yourself and putting this together and authoring this, what do you view as the next steps or potentially what are the things you're currently working on to continue to move this body of literature further? Or another way to think about this question is what would that ideal study or next step look like scrolling all the way back to that initial question of how are stroke patients experiencing sexuality and more specifically how do lgbtq plus individuals who have had strokes how is their sexuality and intimacy with their partner being impacted we have moved forward and we have already recruited for our first study post this review where we conducted a international study we included the US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, where we recruited LGBTQI plus persons that suffered from a stroke and partners were available to explore the question of how did it impact them? How did that stroke impact them in the sense of their sexual identity, their sexuality, and the experiences I came across was quite hard as a gay man to hear. I I was not prepared for some of the, you know, experiences I heard because a lot of it looked at the discrimination impacting on them. And they spoke about the lack of information, the lack of education. They spoke about almost being abandoned in their journey as a stroke survivor. And the questions I asked even made them think about, oh, hold on, I didn't think about that. And they were like, it has impacted me a lot more than I thought. And we're currently working on analysing that data now. I strongly feel it's going to add more to the conversation because I found they went beyond the physical aspect. And what surprised me is that some of the men in the study spoke about the emotional impact how it impacted their ability to form emotional connections. And some of the women spoke about the impact on the physical, about not being able to do some things physically in regards to sexuality. So it tells me that people are are complex. And with such a condition as stroke, it does impact in ways that we're probably not listening to or not even asking about. Because we looked at sexuality as a broad concept and we used the definition from the World Health Organization because it is so broad, it talks about gender and fetishes and fantasies and, you know, it goes so much broader in looking at relationships and communication. 
that when I asked questions and framed it in the context of sexuality being this broader concept, they instantly got it. They were like, yeah, that's what I do. It's not just about the sex, it's about the emotional connection to partners. It's about being recognised and not invisible to people. But we also found a lot of difference in different countries in healthcare. Like in America, you rely on health insurance to get really good treatment, where in Australia, the perception is that everyone will get good treatment. And that came out in the research as well, that not everyone does get good treatment, good health care, regardless where you are. So I think it's going to push the conversation further than just where the conversation is at the moment. Absolutely. I think moving forward, it's going to be such an interesting and exciting field of study because sexuality is also quite disregarded as a conversational topic. I honestly feel it's going to start making people think about patient well-being, person well-being in a different light because we know at the end of the day sexuality is part of quality of life. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where the field goes from here. Well, that was an excellent way to kind of close out your thoughts on that. I could not have said it better myself. The sexuality being a really big part of that human experience and helping unbox that so that we can do a better job as healthcare professionals to treat the whole person. I I think you are absolutely right. There are many more potential ideas and concepts and things that you can help bring to light and add to this conversation. And I wanted to thank you for doing the work you've already done, doing the work that hopefully will be published soon, and the many more things to come. So thank you. If you're up for it, I'd like to ask you some questions in a lightning round just to get to know you a little bit better and shift gears a little bit. Sure. First lightning round question. Tell me a piece of good advice you've received. The best piece of advice I've received is... Everyone has a story. Be open to hearing it. And in in my day-to-day work, I don't talk to patients as a patient. They're a person to me. And so I quite often will ask a patient, what's your story? And people can talk quite openly if you let them. And when you ask someone their story, you get such a wealth of knowledge that goes beyond the medical, and it can help us understand where that person is at and why they may be in a hospital bed with multiple health conditions. But it also makes them a person not just the number. So, yeah, ask people what their story is, and I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. Awesome. Next question. You're facing a really big decision, and you need some help. What do you do? Who do you call? How do you approach that? If it was in my personal life, I would probably go to my husband and go, I've got this big decision. What do I do? And nine times out of ten, he will go, you know what you're going to do? Why don't you just do it? If it was in my professional life, I have one or two colleagues I will almost have on speed dial and go, this has happened, what do I do? And they will almost come back with the same answer. You know what you're going to do? Why are you asking (laughs) So I think it's always that 
we as human beings want to, you know, be given some sort of direction when we probably know the direction already. Next question. This one's a little bit less serious, but you're at the ACRM conference. You find $40 in your suitcase. What do you do with it? I'm the type of person that I enjoy experiencing where I am. So if I'm in a new city I've not been to, I will probably go and buy some sort of meal that I've never had before and just sit and watch the world go by because I'm normally quite fast-paced, I don't slow down, and just to sit and take in the sights of where I am and to see how people are reacting to the environment around them. Last question in the lightning round. What would you tell yourself at age 22 if you could travel back in time? I would probably tell myself to relax a little bit more because at 22 I was like, I want to do so much. I want to make change and social change because I've always been attuned to what was happening around me. But, yeah, I tell myself to relax and just don't stress about it. It will it will come when it comes. Great advice. Great advice for any 22-year-olds out there that might be listening to this for sure. In conclusion, I want to make sure we give you a chance to have any final words before we kind of conclude our talk. I, I think my takeaway message to everyone listening is people are people. We need to do better as health professionals and we need to have those difficult conversations that we may not feel comfortable having or may not want to have. And we need to better ourselves on the knowledge that we have and advance research in a way that we can use the research that is being published and being done in a way that we don't have to wonder how it impacted other minorities such as race and culture and gender. We need to do better research in how we publish and how we write it because at the end of the day, we all want to help people, but we need to sometimes take a step back and just reflect and learn from our peers and learn from how people do things differently to how we do things. And remember that it's not about the biomedical anymore. It's a lot more about the biopsychosocial approach. There is more than just medical issues at back. That would be my takeaway. Awesome. I just want to make sure we take time to thank Will Coquet of the Sydney School of Health Sciences and his study and all the work he put into it. I'm going to take the line straight from the conclusion in his paper that says sexual health and well-being are important for all people, regardless of chronic disease or sexual identity. Chronic disease really has a significant effect on sexuality among LGBTQI plus persons, and this is the first step in many to help us better understand this process and become better healthcare professionals. Now we're going to transition to the second part of the episode in my conversation with Dr. Cheryl Cotter-Charles. Allow her to introduce herself. Thanks for being here. I'm Cheryl Cotter-Charles, a PM&R physician, subspecialized in brain injury medicine. I'm an assistant clinical professor with Indiana University PM&R and a newly named assistant program director of the PM&R residency program. And I run the brain injury program at the Rehab Hospital of Indiana. 
And the topic we will be talking about today is how the COVID-19 pandemic impacted people with chronic brain injury and the study that we conducted. All right. The article that you did is Depression, Anxiety, and Suicidality in Individuals with Chronic Traumatic Brain Injury Before and During the COVID-19 Pandemic, a National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research Traumatic Brain Injury Model System Study, which is awesome, and I'm so glad that you did it. Before we jump into the actual details of the study, I'm always curious what led up to actually getting this study going. What was the I wonder moment or the moment that you thought you'd want to get in to investigate this? Yeah, so as the pandemic progressed and we all kind of got our bearings together by 2021, we were starting to realize clinically how much of an impact all the changes were making on our patients with chronic illnesses and disabilities. And so myself and others in the chronic brain injury task force started discussing who's looking at the impact on people with disabilities, especially chronic brain injury, and how are people doing How is this affecting patients and their families? And so out of that discussion is kind of how this project emerged. We all put our minds together and our different people with different expertise. We kind of came together. That's how this study came about. Awesome. So taking that idea and that concept of wanting to learn more about how people with traumatic brain injury are dealing with the pandemic, what were those next steps? How did you start to pull together the methods for what you were going to look at to get at the idea that you were searching for? There was a lot of discussion on how exactly we would do this because my question was kind of vague to begin with, like, how are people doing? That's a very vague question. So then we started asking ourselves, what is it that we're really interested in? And mental health kind of stood out. The TBI model systems already collects on an ongoing basis data pertaining to mental health. So the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7, which pertains to depression and anxiety. So this data is already being collected. So discussing with others in the field, I came to learn actually that nobody has ever looked at mental health outcomes in people with TBI during a natural disaster or any other public health crisis. Was going around asking people, hey, what happened during 911, like in NYC? That did anybody look at that data? What about Hurricane Katrina's these regional disasters? Nobody had actually done that in the past. So this is the first time the TBI model systems data is being looked at with that question in mind. How is this huge national public health emergency affecting people with uh, chronic brain injury? So this is the first time it had been done. So We had to do a lot of discussions and learn on the go. And then 2020 was also special in that it wasn't just COVID. There was a lot of political unrest as well. So we had to make sure we were keeping that in mind when we're choosing our predictor variables. In May of 2020, you know, the the killing of George Floyd started a lot of racial tension, political unrest. There was also regional differences from place to place and how seriously they were taking the pandemic and then how well they were enforcing some of the rules. And so we had to think about all these differences and make sure they're all accounted for in choosing our methods and our predictor factors. That's great. It's going to be really handy that you already had collected those two different metrics of the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7. In a way, it was um, because they were being collected on an ongoing basis. But at the same time, we had our doubts if those measures were sensitive enough to pick up mental health changes from the pandemic. At that point, when we were coming up with our methods and creating our study, these measures, there weren't a lot of studies out there looking at these measures specifically. And so we weren't sure, but we had to go with these. So when you were thinking about building this study and looking at those two metrics, uh, for the listener's benefit, talk about the different time points you used and how that played into making the methods of the study. We wanted to look at um, two different time points during pandemic and then before the pandemic and see if 
there was any difference in these mental health measures. So for during the pandemic, we looked at April of 2020 to March of 21. And we decided not to use March 2020 because that was the month that the news came out of the pandemic and the pandemic was declared. So that was a mixed bag. There might be some individuals that we were collecting data from that that was pre-pandemic. So since that was a mixed month, we chose not to use March of 2020. And then uh, we have data going back to 2017, uh, looking at PHQ-9 and GAD-7. So we decided to use data from January of 2017 to end of February of 2020 as the pre-pandemic time period. And did you have specific time points from injury that you actually looked at for those two metrics? Yeah, so we were looking at the people with chronic brain injuries. So we didn't want to collect information from people who were being discharged from, you know, inpatient rehab facilities during the pandemic. We were looking more so at people who are already living with a brain injury. And so the data is collected post-injury year one, two, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, and 30. And so that data was what we were looking at. Awesome. And so now you have your time points, you have the two metrics you're going to be looking at. Talk to me about how it ended up coming together and give me the, the details about the results and the interesting stuff you found. Well, so there were a lot of studies at that time looking at different subsets like healthcare workers, different population at large, and everyone seemed to be burning out and there was depression and anxiety were at an all-time high. So we had a really surprising result, and that was that depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation was relatively stable in people with chronic brain injury. It's probably higher than the non-injured population, but the pandemic itself didn't really make a big difference. So then we had to ask ourselves, why? Is this a problem with the way we conducted the study or is it something else? Our clinical experience was that this was causing issues for our patients and their families, but we started questioning ourselves. Could it be that our measures had a ceiling effect? And, you know, the experts were telling us, no, that that's not the case. And so for listeners who may not know the ceiling effect, the question is, are people so stressed out that they couldn't possibly be more depressed or anxious. And so a measure with a ceiling effect wouldn't have made a difference because it was as high as it would go. And that wasn't, that wasn't the case with the PHQ-9 and GAD-7. The other big thing that comes to light then is kind of other methodologies. So one big thing is that we had to exclude anybody without the PHQ-9 and GAD-7 data, right? So a lot of times these might be individuals who are nonverbal or who have aphasia or some sort of speech restriction that would limit them from providing their own answers. And so of the 9,000 or so people that we looked at, about 2,000 people were eliminated because of lack of PHQ-9 and GAD-7 data. So this study is limited in that regard. So we're only looking at people who can actually answer the questions. We don't know about patients and their families who weren't able to answer this question I found that result so interesting. It really surprised me as I kind of went through it that I was like, okay, this is going to match with the other publications that have been out there and JAMA and other publications that use the same PHQ-9 model and showed that the general population had increases in all of this. And that's really what led to a lot of the conversation about improved mental health services and all of those things. And it really got me thinking a lot as to, you know, Is there a certain level of adaption or dealing with frustrating situations or big shifts in life that, you know, a traumatic brain injury person has already gone through? And this, in some ways, kind of like what they've already gone through when you think about the mental health aspect of adjustment to change and all sorts of other stuff that they just were already not quite ceiling effect, but we're dealing with some of these things already, and these metrics just didn't show that there was a difference because they've already been dealing with loss and dealing with other experiences from their brain injury that the COVID-19 and pandemic didn't drastically change all that much. Two things that you said. One was um, 
how anxiety and depression in, in the general population was high. Well, if you look at those studies, it was high during March of 2020, and then it returned to pre-pandemic levels. I think our study eliminating March of 2020, thinking it was a mixed bag, that may be the reason that we're seeing this sort of trend. The other point that you're making has to do with resiliency. I mean, that's the only explanation that makes sense to me is that our patients and our, you know, people with chronic brain injuries are more resilient than we may think. And so there might be some adaptive or protective effects having gone through something as traumatic as a TBI that helps them cope with things like the public health emergency that the pandemic was. What we just don't know, and there is no good way to measure resiliency. There's no data being collected about resiliency. That's so interesting. And you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought about not including the March data and how that would have affected some of this too. When you think about this study, and at the beginning, you kind of hinted at this, we're not tracking in the model systems or looking at this question for other big public health things that have happened over the years when you think about those next steps for yourself or the collaborators that you worked on this paper with, is there some interest in maybe going back and looking at how the individuals and in model systems around the Katrina region, when that happened and how that affected things, or looking into some other bigger events and what things look like there? Or what are your next steps when you're thinking about similar things? The next step has to do with the already high PHQ-9 and GAB-7 score. So even though the pandemic didn't make a big difference on depression, anxiety, the levels are high in individuals with chronic brain injury. It's not that the levels are average. The levels are still high. So there is still a need to address mental health in this population. And there might be some opportunities now with the option of telehealth that might improve access for these individuals for mental health providers. So I think that was sort of the focus in the next steps. We hadn't thought about going back to look at Katrina or 9-11 and that region. I certainly think that would be interesting to see and learn from. Again, if there was no change in their mental health, also that might again reflect on that resiliency piece. But that said, I don't think the model systems was collecting data, at least at the time of 9-11, they weren't collecting the PHQ-9 and GAD-7. So that might be a limitation there. Very good points. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. And when you think about the listener and you know what ideas this may spark, are there other ideas or spinoff pieces, and not to share your research secrets or what you may already be working on, but has this sparked any other conversations outside of brain injury or other when you're thinking about, you know, your colleagues in Indiana that have led to other conversations that you guys are talking about? We did have a discussion during Grand Rounds about spinal cord injury. And in fact, the Grand Rounds was on um, gun violence and uh, individual spinal cord injury. And we did end up talking about how the COVID-19 pandemic affected individuals with spinal cord injuries and sort of the data there is different. People with paralysis, spinal cord injuries have also gone through something traumatic, but their data and the resiliency there wasn't the same. Their measures were affected by the COVID-19 shutdowns, the lack of access to healthcare and things of that nature. And so that was startling to see. So there's something unique about the brain injury population that, you know, we still need to study. And then going back to the chronic brain injury task force, there was another group of people, myself included, looking at different measures. And that article, I believe, is pending. I'm not sure where that is, but they were looking at different aspects in the same patient population so that those results are forthcoming. Well, I want to commend you on all the hard work and thank you for putting it out there. And hopefully this leads to more conversations about mental health for our rehab patients and the things we can do as providers and clinicians and healthcare professionals to help treat the whole person. And I really want to commend you on this work. Great. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Are you ready for some lightning round questions? Sure. 
Okay, uh, these can be quick, short answers, or as long as you want. It's totally up to you. First question, tell me about a piece of good advice you've received. Uh, don't boil the whole ocean. Break things down into pieces and try not to take on too much all at once. Makes sense. That's always great advice. And I can almost guess some of the people that have said that. Next question, you're facing a really big decision and you need some help. Tell me about who you call or how you approach tackling that problem. I would probably call my husband because he has a really nice way of helping me think through things. And in fact, I think it's when we talk to each other, we think through things better than we would individually. And so he's really the person I would turn to um, to talk things over about a big decision. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Next question, a little bit more fun. You find $40 in your suitcase at the ACRM conference. What do you do with it? In my suitcase. Yep. So it's probably my money that I just forgot about. So I'd probably be getting drinks and buying drinks for others. <laughs> awesome. Last lightning round question. What would you tell yourself at age 22 if you could travel back in time? Age 22. I would tell my 22-year-old self that my dreams are not too big, that they're just right, and to keep at it. What a great way to close this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing all the great stuff you'll be doing in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Bill. All right, man. Thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think about. You've got a history with podcasts with APM&R, right? I was the social mediator, so I was mainly doing Twitter. I've done a handful of episodes for various podcasts, but I was mainly the Twitter person for AAPM&R Journal. I gotcha. Okay. I guess it's not the hot new thing anymore. It's just a standard part of the media uh, ecosystem now. There's you know podcasts for everything. And I'm definitely uh, pleased with the, the audience that we've built up for this podcast over the years and glad to hand it off to someone with new energy to take it forward and so forth. I think everyone from what I've heard uh, at the journal is pleased with the engagement and, and so forth. My version of the rehab cast is kind of the second iteration of it. So, you know, kind of the second uh, podcast host. Now you're the third. So it just keeps going on. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's great. And I also like being able to amplify the voices of people doing the research and making sure that we're talking with everyone that's kind of involved and participating and promoting this great big field of rehab. Yeah. You know, you've had the ex experience of, you know, writing articles and so have I, and you don't have the opportunity to say everything that you want to say. And this kind of gives people that opportunity, you know, they spend so long uh, doing something and you have to kind of convey it in this kind of stayed written format. It's great just to have a conversation with people. And I've really enjoyed speaking with people on this podcast from different areas of the world and haven't aired all of it. So, you know, the chatter before and after is very nice too. Sometimes I've incorporated that in, in the podcast as well. But this journal is utilized worldwide. Yeah. I also uh, I like what you've done in the past of really helping figure out what was the lead up to that publication and then helping unbox what they're thinking about next. I think it adds some nice breath beyond just that paper to really highlight how researchers think and how some people just stumble upon a topic and publish on it. And others, this is just part of the next series of things that they're doing. It's a great learning opportunity for anyone that's curious to be able to, to host a podcast and speak with interesting people around the world. And yeah, I mean, I've, I think I've learned something from just about everyone that, that I've done, some more than I expected. Oh, okay, I didn't <laughs> quite understand that. <laughs> and, you know, I don't mind learning stuff yeah. on it. So you have to have to have some humility in that regard. That's kind of the whole point. This podcast, I think, has, you know, very smart audience, you know, specialists in, in this field. I mean, who's going to look up, you know, an academic podcast and rehabilitation medicine who doesn't know something about it to begin with. So that's the interesting part about it, too. We're already a couple of steps ahead. Don't have to explain the basics to our audience too much and, and kind of learn together. Uh, so that's a, a really cool thing. You mentioned learning a lot from prior episodes and things. What would you say is the some of the highlights or some of the big things that you stumbled upon that you didn't necessarily expect to happen over the course of this? 
Well, you know, I like learning about, you know, new technologies and, and that type of thing. And it's always fascinating to me when I come across an article that I feel like speaks to my practice and kind of gaps that, that we have. And I admit that from time to time, I've used the interviews for a little bit of advocacy for things that I think they ought to do next or we need to do more of and, and so forth and so on. Uh, things that might lead to different maybe policy outcomes or payer outcomes and so forth and so on. Some I've just found, you know, genuinely fascinating. We've all seen, for example, you know, significant pressure wounds over the um, you know, course of our careers and no kind of general risk factors for that. But I was particularly fascinated by one of the interviews about an article in the journal in which we learned in more detail about kind of the phenotypic, genotypic, interstitial tissue integrity that all of us have. And, you know, uh, frankly, some people are going to be more prone to a pressure wound than others. This is, I think, was like kind of critical information for our field to something so fundamental. And, you know, I hope that that research continues to advance. There was a scan that can be done that might be able to identify who is at higher risk uh, and so forth. But there's been a variety of things like that over the years, various DME technologies and wheelchair advancements and so forth that are fascinating to, to learn about. And I've definitely have sometimes come across, you know, hopefully listeners do too. I've come across doing the podcast, thinking about things that I then go on to mention to my hospital or colleagues as things that we ought to look into. And and so it's it's an educational experience in that regard. So the listener can get something out of it, but the host can too. And, and that's great. When you're thinking about this going forward, do you have any tips, tricks, or advice for me? Well, I spent a lot of time early on going back and forth with people on scheduling and that type of thing. And, you know, that's something I got better with over time. And, you know, the most important is just uh, getting with people as quickly as possible is kind of whatever works for folks to schedule you're using this nifty calendar app that I think is going to be fantastic for you and kind of sending out, you know, uh, your available dates and people pick a, a date and so forth. But yeah, we're dealing with different time zones and uh, and so forth. I will admit our podcast is frankly largely, you know, it's English focused. I don't know if that's something that, you know, from time to time we can, you know, kind of work in a translator option or something like that. But there are plenty of researchers who English is not their first language or their language. And how could we better connect with some of those folks on this format? I tried that early on a bit and uh, just was not working. So I have kind of made that one of my criteria, or that does limit the pool a little bit, not not too much. I mean, English is kind of the lingua franca, <laughs> I guess you could say, of science. But at any rate, uh, so time zones, language difficulties, perhaps scheduling difficulties, that's kind of the work of it. But that can be smoothed out. And I think will be smoothed out by, by what you're doing and so forth. And I've just been honest with folks that, you know, I just need you know, can can you speak on this particular day or not? And if they can't, we need to move on to the next one and so forth just to kind of get it in. And so you kind of come up with your rank list of who you'd like to talk with and this particular next issue and so forth. But it might not always be possible. It's not the end of the world. Virtually every paper has something interesting uh, to talk about. Yeah, I think that's the best part of this is finding those gems that you didn't necessarily expect to find and really broadening the, the voice of what's out there. And I think I'm going to try and do my best to make sure that we're not sticking in a vein of research or a type of author or anything like that and really trying to highlight all the good things that we're doing out there as a rehab field and just make the most of it. Remind me, how many years have you been doing this? You know, that would, you would think that would be something I would know. <laughs> but it's been a while. It's certainly been at least four, maybe maybe five. And I was doing it more frequently to start out with. And just scheduling reasons have forced me to, to back down and so forth. Finally, to the point where, yes, let's move on to the to the next host and, and so forth. And obviously, you won't be able to do it forever either. But, you know, it does, does require some time commitment in that, in that regard. But it's been a good, a good while, um, but I've actually look, look, have to look back in the archive to double check exactly what, what date that I started. That being said, I think that there's just so many possibilities. For my initial raft of podcasts, I was doing some segments that I no longer had time to do. But, you know, one-offs from time to time can be very interesting, kind of more like, you know, kind of little reported sections or commentaries on, you know, news of relevance to, to rehabilitation and so forth. When I came into this podcast, I had just come off of being Atlanta uh, NPR's correspondent and had been doing some regular drive time segments on Wednesday mornings and had gotten kind of used to cutting in various bits of audio and that type of thing and uh, kind of the NPR style and, and, and so forth. And I did that 
for some of the initial podcasts and so forth, but uh, uh, just became a bit untenable. Obviously, the meat of the podcast is the interview itself. That's the core thing. But, you know, that is an opportunity that can be explored as well as, you know, incorporating the podcast more with other live events, you know, certainly the ACRM conference uh, and th- those types of things. One could host planned interview folks at a conference and make that the podcast and, and, and so forth. And I think those are things worth exploring as well. Yeah, we we have plans to do that for the 100th conference being held, which will be in Atlanta this year, uh, towards the end of October into early November. So I'll be in your neck of the woods around that time, and maybe we can get you back or have a panel or something like that. The one thing I was going to add to this is I have a list of lightning round questions. Do you think you'd be up for some? Uh, they're they're harmless. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brachial plexus questions. No, 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 no drawing the brachial plexus. Or if we asked you to do it, I would just say, wow, that's perfect. <laughs> right. So we're, we're looking for a quick answer for some of these, just kind of whatever you have off the cuff. So the first one is, tell me a piece of good advice you've received and actually implemented over the years. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, key to what I do is, because I'm an inpatient physiatrist, is listen to the nurses and value their opinion and, you know, your case manager and so forth. And obviously everyone talks about rehab being a team sport, but really everyone is your eyes and ears on the rehab unit and so forth. And, you know, we're, we have the benefit of developing some close relationships with staff and being able to trust people and, and, and so forth. So I, I would say that has been key to my career. Yeah, starting with that default of trust is always a good place to start at and making sure that you're hearing that whole message, even the message behind the message sometimes is even more important. That's great advice. Okay, lightning round question number two. You're facing a really big decision and you need some help. Who do you call or what do you do? Wow. I trust this is a clinical question. Yes. (laughs) You make it what you want. Well, in terms of clinical questions, I, I routinely text my colleagues, and we do this with, with each other as well, and just say, hey, you know, have you seen this before? And try to be collaborative on that front. So yeah, I mean, folks around this hospital are, are used to receiving a quick text or email from me and, uh, and vice versa. So yeah. I think I've even pulled that card with you. Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. I can what about you. this? <laughs> a few different times, I've definitely pinged you for one of those types of questions. So thank you for your time when you've done that. Now for a fun one. You find $40 in your suitcase at the next ACRM conference that you didn't know was there. What do you do with it? Okay, 40 bucks. That sounds like would probably go to the food budget for the conference, maybe splurge a little bit on something that I wouldn't have, supplement my conference food budget, I would think. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And here's the last one. Um, what would you tell yourself at age 22 if you could travel back in time? Age 22, man, uh, obviously in throes of medical education and everything at at that time. At that time, I did not uh, know that I was going to go into rehabilitation medicine. So maybe (laughs) giving myself a heads up in in that regard. But at age 22, I would have told myself to, obviously, I I do like where I ended up. So I don't want want to disrupt the space-time continuum too much. You know, what what might might I disturb in terms of relieving myself of pressures or issues that I've had would be probably the most salient thing to recognize that, you know, I mean, residency is is tough. You're taking a lot of orders and everything, but it's not too long in the expanse of time of your medical career. So I probably would have just offered myself kind of more reassurance that, you know, your your future self values what you're doing now. Thank you. Uh, It's worth it. That, That type of message. That's great. Yeah, it would be nice to get that kind of future hindsight once in a while when you're in the throes of something. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's kind of funny how we we look back at those times that were hard and difficult, but there's like a fondness to them because we've got through them. That's true. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully this will end up being a good ad and a growth of this medium out to the world for the ACRM journal and the society rehabilitation and uh yeah thanks for trusting me when we talked about trust a little bit ago trusting me with this enterprise well i mean i I genuinely believe you're one of the most prominent physiatrists out there uh, you know media social media generally and so forth and i think this is a perfect fit for you and i look forward to seeing what comes next all right well 
Thanks, Dr. Box, and uh, it's in good hands. And uh, let's we'll, we'll keep tapping you on the shoulder about uh, ideas and things to vet them as we move through this. So appreciate your time and all the efforts you've done so far. All right, you bet. Thank all you. Right. We'll see you later. Yes, sir. Hopefully you found these two topics to be quite interesting and applicable to you and your own practice as a healthcare rehab professional. For more topics like these, be sure to check out the show notes and links to the article on how to best contact these authors. We appreciate you joining us today on the ACRM Rehabcast. Be the first to check out our next episode and subscribe wherever you are listening now. I'm Dr. Bill Niehaus. Follow me on Twitter at NHAUSMD. Special thanks to Philip Frobos who produced this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes to see other things that Philip is doing. Philip, play us out while I read the mandated promotional material. Come celebrate ACRM's 100th International Rehabilitation Conference in Atlanta later this year. The core ACRM 2023 conference will be running from October 30th to November 2nd. It's never too late to register. If somehow you don't manage to make it this year, definitely follow along on social media. We'll be using the hashtag ACRM2023.